you know, there are times when you think you've gone out to minister to someone and that person actually ministers to you. Happened to me this week when Gloria and I visited a very old person. Uh, she lives in a home. I've told this story before, I think. She's one person who prays for me virtually every single day of her life. And she's well into her 80s. And uh, she told me one more time this week that I'm praying for you, Andrew, every single day. You know, Dr. Billy Graham used to say, Blessed is the man or the woman who has a mother praying for him or her every single day. I'm not sure how many of you are blessed to have a mother praying for you every single day. I don't have a mother who prays for me every single day, but she's my mother in that sense. We came out of that home so lifted up, so encouraged. We went there to minister to her. She ended up ministering to us. That's what I'm going to say here. I'm going to minister to you today, but I need for you to minister to me, please. It's, uh, it's been very rough of, of late, and I'm just, I could drop right now, believe me. I'm just so tired, so very weak. And I've got this plantar fasciitis on my foot, and that doesn't help to stand leading worship as well as to preach. So pray that we will have people who will be able to rise up and uh, help us with ministry. But there are other stuff as well that is going on right now. And so I'm just really worn threadbare. Uh, I can't give anymore. So I'm going to see this sermon through. But even as I minister to you, could you please be ministering to me by, I don't know how you can do it, juggling two balls in the air, listening to me as well as praying for me. You can. Women can at least. You can multitask. <laughs> so I rely on the women. <laughs> now you men can do that too. So yeah, please, if you would. Uh, I would appreciate that. All right. Going through the book of Galatians is the joy of my life as a minister to be able to go through books of the Bible, narrative by narrative, passage by passage. I haven't shared with you before this church, have I, that in one year in my life, I took exactly one year to preach through the book of Ephesians. Fifty weeks, with two weeks taken out, one for Easter and one for Christmas. The other parts of the year, just on Ephesians, virtually passage by passage, well, I shan't subject you to that here. So I'm moving on a path, faster pace. So we're going through the book of Galatians. We're on part five now. And I should very much like to ask Joel, if uh, Joel, if you would please come and read chapter 2, verse 17 to 21 for us, Joel. Galatians 2, 17 to 21. But if in our endeavour to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is... Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebelled what I saw down, I proved myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith 
in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Shall we seek God's blessing as we bow before his word together? Lord, open your word for us that we may behold wondrous things in it. Help us not to be hearers only, deceiving ourselves, but help us to be doers of the word, we ask. Amen. I wonder whether you have heard of this true story that came out in the papers not too long ago about a teacher uh, in Toronto, in Canada, who bought this lottery ticket uh, one summer, or just before the beginning of summer, at a Shell gas station. And he put it on his fridge. And he went off for the summer vacation, backpacking all over Europe. And as he says, counting the coins as he traveled. It wasn't until he was back teaching at school that he decided to check stacks of tickets at the grocery store. At first he thought he won $21,000 and that would have made him pretty happy. But when he talked on the phone with the lottery spokesperson, the spokesperson said, no, 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 you won $21.4 million. $21.4 million. He dropped the phone, completely frozen, then, then. Don't you like that imagery of a piece of paper lying on the fridge door <laughs> that is worth that amount, and people are just passing by that day and night, and nobody cared for that? I somehow like that imagery very much. Uh, and all the time they were packing all through, backpacking all through Europe, counting the coins, as he says, completely oblivious to the fact that he already is a millionaire. But as soon as he discovered that he's now a millionaire, his life completely changed. It transformed him completely. I don't know how to put it. Totally. Absolutely. He's a different man altogether. Now, we are face to face this morning with a passage that should have changed everything about you. Your desires, your passions, your fears, your anxieties, your nervousness, your lust. Everything. It should have changed all that completely turned you out inside out. This passage, right here. But it hasn't, has it, to you? Not to me either. We live our lives counting coins, while all the time the liberating, freeing message of the gospel hangs there on the fridge door, metaphorically speaking. By the way, I'm going to use this imagery of the lottery ticket quite often this morning, please, I'm not endorsing lottery buying. Not at all. I don't do that. I don't think you should. It's just an imagery, all right? So don't, don't email me, please, after this sermon. Okay? Uh, remember that teacher, he originally thought that he had won $21,000. Now, had he won $21,000, it'll make him quite happy. Perhaps he'll buy a brand new car. But that's all. He couldn't quit his job. He couldn't. It's not enough to transform him around. Now, for most of, of us Christians, that's just what the gospel is to us. Just enough to make us a little happy. It doesn't really transform us. The message here teaches us how 
we may get to the place where the gospel isn't just that winning ticket on your fridge door. It's saying, don't just believe the gospel. Cash in. Cash it in. So that you can have a taste of freedom. Now, if you were with us the last four weeks, you would have heard the story of Peter in this book, Galatians. How that he knew in his head the truth of the gospel. He knew that Jesus alone saves. No one else saves. So Peter knew it here. But as soon as he got up from the table and walked away from eating with the Gentile Christians when the Judaizers appeared, by doing that, he showed us that it was only belief in his head. Hadn't gone down the 12 inches to his heart. Hadn't done that. The same with us. We shouldn't be too hard on Peter. It's the same with us. We believe in our heads that we have been justified on account of what Jesus did for us. But though we believe in our heads, we don't have it transformed our lives. We still live as if we need to earn God's approval. We try so hard to do good works just so that God would approve of us. Now this passage shows us how hard it is, very hard, to think and feel and act like we're really free people. If only 10% of Christians all over the world would live this way, the world would be a very different place. It shows that almost all of us are just limping by, really. Take Martin Luther, for example. He should know better. He was a monk, after all. He was a monk, a minister, a student of the Bible. Now, you would have thought that if anyone understood the core of the gospel that Martin, Martin Luther did. But now, he would flagellate himself. He would go for long days not eating. He would think that the more Bible he memorized, maybe, maybe God would be more pleased with him. He would do this, he would do that, until one day he read from that passage in the book of Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. And for some reason, in that instant, he was a different man, completely transformed. Just like he pulled off the ticket from the fridge door, you know, ripped it from the fridge door and went and he cashed it. The gospel is as simple as ABC. It has got to be so that simple people could come to Christ. It's got to be simple. But the implication of the gospel, that is so hard to get for some reason. You know, I've, I've lost count the number of years I have been in the ministry, but it was only in the last seven and a half years that I really finally got the meaning of the gospel. So is it any wonder why Luther would say that people would stare at the gospel like a cow stares at a new gate? Now your response rightly at this stage, if I read your mind rightly, your response at this stage is, what is he about? Haven't I been a Christian for all these long years? Just what is he about? I know what being a Christian is. I've been saved. I've gone to church all my whole life. I've heard the gospel a zillion times. I know I'm not saved by doing this, by doing that. I, I know I'm saved by, by Jesus. Really? Really? Why are you so nervous? Why are you so joyless? Why have you got to prove yourself all the time? Why are you fearful to tell the truth? You know and you don't. 
The winning ticket is still on your fridge door. Right, if there's something about the gospel that somehow we're not getting, just what is it that we're not getting? First, you've got to see that your basic problem is that you do not understand the core of the gospel. Forgive me if I'm wrong, and I pray that I'm wrong. But if perchance I'm right, that you don't really understand the core of the gospel, then we had better get to the core of the gospel. And it is this. It is not a set of do's and don'ts. It's never, it was never meant to be a set of do's and don'ts. You walk out of this church now, on your way home, you stop the average guy on the street and ask him what a Christian is. I bet you he will tell you a Christian is someone who tries to be good. A Christian is someone who wants to be good. Somehow we've got that. Somehow we've got that idea that the core, the essential of a Christian is goodness. Doing right. Being moral. That's just so far from what the gospel is. It really is so far from what the gospel is. Christianity is not about ways to help you live a better life. It's not. You might just as well go to Buddhism for that. I was a Buddhist before. If all you want is a set of four noble truths and eightfold path to walk the right way. Pick any of those. They're far better than Christianity. They're clear on how to live the good life. But Christianity is not about how to live the good life. Of course, you will be good when you, beco when you become a Christian. You'll be a better person than before you did. And of course, you will want to attend church, you want to read the Bible, you want to forgive people, you want to do good, you want to help the poor, but all that is not the core of the gospel. You know, a pharmacist wears white top, but does that define the essence of what a pharmacist is? Because many other professions wear white tops. They're not pharmacists at, well, at, at, pharmacist at all. In the same way, there are a lot of good people out there, good, really good, morally upright people, who are not Christians. Being good is not the core essential of what a Christian is. What then? The key is found in verse 21. And there's a word there we need to take note. It's the word righteousness. Now, believe it or not, every person craves for righteousness. Verse 21 simply assumes that everyone in this world craves for righteousness. It says, if righteousness could be gained through the law, it assumes that everybody is trying to gain righteousness. And it is. You know, for the average person, that word flies over their head. They will say, surely righteousness is not what I'm craving for. And I bet you again, if you stop someone on the streets going home this afternoon and say, I know what you're craving for. You're craving for righteousness. He'll at once deny that. The average person will deny that. Because they have the... To them, that word righteousness has a connotation of religiosity, of piety, of being spiritual. But it's a very common word, really, in the Bible. It simply means standing right before another person. Now, if it is that, am I not right to say that everybody craves for righteousness? 
everybody is chasing after righteousness with such vigor and intensity. That's the reason why Woody Allen couldn't stand watching his own movies. That's the reason why Harold Abraham in the movie Chariots of Fire just before the 100 meters sprint as he was down on the starting block he says to himself this four feet wide corridor I have just 10 seconds to justify my existence that's the reason why Lance Armstrong took drugs that's the reason why Clayton Weatherston did what he did to Sophie Elliott that's the reason why that couple with a dead child packed their dead child on their backpack and jumped from that cliff in England or Scotland some time back. That's the reason why some students throw themselves off the bridge when they fail their exam. That's the reason why you're so scared. That's the reason why you're so nervous. That's the reason why you're so fearful. That's the reason why you strive so hard. That's the reason why you blow your lid every now and again. That's the reason, that's the reason every one of us really is looking for that verdict that never seemed to come for some reason. I've met men who have told me, my father have never once told me that he was proud of me. I go scratching my head. If your father never told you that he's proud of you, why is this significant for you? If he never told you, how would you know that you need that? But they do, and they rightly do. Because we, we, we crave for that. We crave to stand before someone and have that someone scrutinize us and say, yeah, okay, you're past master. We need that. It is unfortunate that that Greek word, the kaiosune, and the Hebrew word, sidaki, has come to be translated into the English language as righteousness. A very bad translation, but there you have it. I've checked virtually every single translation. Everyone has that word, the kaiosune and siddiki, translated as righteousness. Because there's no other word, really. But it's very unfortunate because it has the connotation of piety, of devotion. But the biblical meaning is something far more down to earth far more practical, far more relational. It's got everything to do with standing before somebody and being unafraid. At the start of the human history, let me go back now in time, our first parents, they could stand so boldly before God. I've quite often dreamed about being in the Garden of Eden, how it must have felt. And that was how they felt, our first parents. They stood before God completely, completely at ease before God, knowing deep inside they were absolutely right and pure and holy before God. And they stood before God feeling no shame. Didn't feel judged. Didn't feel condemned. Didn't feel inadequate. They felt totally as accepted. In fact, more than accepted, they felt treasured. They felt cherished. They felt ravished by God. They knew that God really, really loved them. In short, they felt, and here's the word, righteous. You get it? In short, they felt righteous. But then they thought they knew better. 
they decided that they should be the ones calling the shot. They decided that no one is going to tell them what to do, that they must be the one calling the shots. But as soon as they defied God, as soon as they spit God on the face and turned their backs on him, that very second, something horrible unraveled within their very being. They felt like their souls have been ransacked and desecrated. Deep in the core of their being, they felt they were coming apart. The things were just unraveling at the seam. They became conscious of their nakedness for the very first time and they felt shame for the very first time. All that imploded in a split nanosecond. Now, get this. It was Francis Schaeffer, as far as all my readings have showed me, he's the only person who makes so much about the fact that the fall, when that instant, when that nanosecond, when they turned from being holy to being depraved, Francis Schaeffer insists, and rightly so, that that happened in actual time, in actual space, in history of this universe. It happened in actual time, in actual space, in the history of this universe. It was a pure historical event. But in that very one moment, it was as if in one moment before they were totally free, totally joyful, totally innocent, but in the very next nanosecond, they experienced ghastly dreadfulness. In one split second, they turned from experiencing sheer bliss into, experience, into experiencing sheer abomination and pandemonium. It's like there was this massive landslide in their soul, in their body, in their spirit, all within that split second in time. Whereas before, they were approved, now looked upon with contempt. Before, there was peace and there was confidence, now confusion and self-disgust. Whereas before, there was praise and, and esteem, now there was guilt and dishonor. And you know something? This is bad news because this is what you and I have inherited. The very moment you came out from your mother's womb, you came out flawed. Now this is what Neil Armstrong, uh, Neil Anderson, this is what Neil Anderson would insist. We all came into this world flawed. If everyone, everyone is born into this world knowing we're not esteemed, somehow, you look at Vikas's baby, Johan, young as he is, wouldn't be too long before he's conscious that he's not esteemed, that he's not regarded, that he's not valuable, that he's not lovable. And if you and I know what is good for us, we had better be looking for ways to make ourselves loved, for ways to make ourselves regarded. And that is what is driving all of us. I discovered that seven and a half years ago, that what is what is driving me to work so hard as a pastor and that's all wrong that sort of motivation is completely wrong it may do you some good nevertheless it is a wrong motivation really it drives virtually everything you do what you're looking for what you cherish what you're striving for and in the biblical sense that is the struggle for justification, 
for righteousness. And that was what the Judaizers here were struggling with. And that was what Paul himself struggled with before he met Christ. You know, before he was confronted by Christ, he was a Pharisee. Uh, he struggled. He found acceptance through obeying every single ceremonial law. He was a Pharisee. He kept, kept up with being very religious. He worked his socks off, obeying every point of the law. What he is saying, in essence, is this. I sense the shame of my nakedness. It's as if God was looking down at me, and I felt the sting of my shame. It was something so horrendous, I had to be delivered from it. And so what I did, I tried harder. I tried keeping the law, I prayed harder, I kept my body clean. I was careful with what I ate, I was careful with whom I eat with. I was trying to cover my nakedness, I was trying to deal with my sense of unrighteousness. And all the time that I was doing that, I was trying to be religious, and it made me more and more miserable. I'm just paraphrasing Paul. But then he got, he got it. Quite suddenly he got it. And he turned around and he wrote verse 19. I died to the law so that I might live for God. He's saying, I finally got it. I finally got it. I came to see that I've got to stop being religious. I died to the law. I died to living according to the law. I died to trying to find my own righteousness. Now at this point, the penny hadn't dropped yet, to use the English phrase, for the Judaizers. Because the Judaizers has been arguing that to Paul and to Peter, the Judaizers were saying, if you are encouraging my fellow Christian Gentiles to neglect the dietary laws, then you are making them like Gentile sinners. And by that you are making Christ a minister of sin. Verse 17. Christ is made a minister of sin if you encouraged my Jewish Christians to become like Gentile sinners. And Paul says to them, no, 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 no. Eating with Gentile Christians does not make Christ an agent of sin because it is not sin to find my freedom from the ceremonial laws. It is not sin to love Gentile Christians. It is not sin to eat with them. It is not sin to have to look at it's not sin to no longer look at the law to serve me. In short, Paul is saying to the Judaizers, I get it and I wish you would get it too. And this is the reason why your winning ticket is still on the fridge door. You have quite get this that Paul got. For some reason, you can't see that nobody is saved by what they did. Now please, let this sink in. Virtually not one single soul in this world has ever been saved through what they did. Not one. Nobody but nobody is ever accepted by God based on what they did. In the matter of your salvation, you were incredibly passive. And on the day that God accepted you, He didn't accept you by taking notice of what you did and then accept you. None of that. 
You've got to get into your head that God saved you simply because God saved you. Just that. You're not the point. <laughs> You're never the point. You did nothing to deserve that. And you can never do anything to make God love you more. Look at verse 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one, absolutely no one, will be justified. I like how graphic the word of God is. By the works of the law shall no one be justified. Now, let me give you the logical order of the gospel. The logical order of the gospel is this. You put your faith in God. One. Two, he accepts you. And then three, you do good works. The Judaizers take a look at this and say, uh-uh, not good enough. They turn it the other way around. So to the Judaizers, you put your faith in God. You do good works. Then God accepts you. But that's not the gospel. Your progress comes from God's approval. That's all. God's approval does not come from your progress. All said and done, the gospel isn't even about making progress at all to becoming a better person. Do you hear that? All said and done, the gospel isn't even about you becoming a better person at all. It's about someone standing in your place for you and saying to you, it's a done deal. All said and done, it's more about substitution than transformation. Let me see if I can make this clear to you. Let's say you're a student at Messi. And let's say you couldn't complete your assignment. You, couldn't, you just couldn't, couldn't complete your assignment even though this is your third extension. Your last short, and you blew it. So that morning when you walked into the professor's office, you're a little afraid, but, but you, you told him, you told him you haven't been able to complete your assignment. And he was about to blow his top. But just before he could lash out at you, you tell him the honest reason for why you couldn't finish your assignment. You told him that you've just had a miscarriage in the last 12 days. And you showed him a medical certificate to validate that. And on top of that, you told him that your brother has just been killed in an accident. As soon as he hears that, his view of you changes. His view of you changes. Your status hasn't changed. The fact still remains that your assignment is not on his desk. Your status hasn't changed. It will be on record. It will be on record that you hadn't passed in your assignment. But what has changed is his view of you. Now catch this analogy because this is what the gospel is. God looks at us. We haven't changed one bit. 
we haven't. Because our best shot at getting it right to God is just filthy rags. And yet his view of us has changed. Because when he sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ covering us. And there's such a huge smile on his face you will never believe when you see God looking at you. I've seen how Vinay looks at Adya. Oh, he looks at his daughter with such great delight in his face, in his eyes. And Zephaniah tells us that that is exactly how God looks at us. He rocks us in his arms and he's, he sings over us. Because we have changed one bit? No. Because his view of you has changed. And that makes all the difference. Makes all the difference. Now the crux of the gospel is this. Who you are before God has not changed one bit. But his view of you changed. He declares you, he pronounces you justified. Even though in actual fact you aren't justified. He takes Jesus' righteousness and puts it over you. And then, come verse, and then comes verse 20, the verse that millions and millions of Christians have memorized in their hearts. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. Every Christian should read verse 20 jumping with joy. Because God looks upon you and he sees you as having been crucified don't have to be crucified anymore you have been in God's eyes you have paid you have died to the death that you deserve and he treats you as if you have died the same death that Christ died and lived the same life that Christ lived when God looks at you he justifies you you need not try to be good anymore in Christ you are good there is this great exchange I give Christ my sin. He gives me his righteousness. Unfair exchange to be sure, but it is a great exchange. And it gets even better. I give him my slavery. He gives me his freedom. I give him my defeat. He gives me his victory. I give him my shame. And he gives me his glory. I give him my judgment. And he gives me his mercy. But best of all, best of all, I give him my death. And he gives me his life. Romans 6. We shall not take time to read. Now the day you grasp this is the day you rip that ticket off from the fridge door and go cash it. That's the day you are set free. It will translate into freedom, really. Smaller things will no longer haunt you. How people view you will no longer be such a big deal, really. You, you're not going to be as anxious as you were before. You're not going to fret over things as you did before. Uh, you're not as easily devastated by people's opinion of you. You're free to be weak. You're free to be a nobody. You're free to lose. You're free to be no one, really. That is very freeing. Some days I really get it. <laughs> My wife would say, why are you so smiling about <laughs> Some days I get it. Some days I get it so clearly. 
that I can fail. I can preach a lousy sermon next weekend. It's okay. It's okay. It doesn't matter. I'm free to be ordinary. I'm free to fail. You need to know that everything you ever desire to cover up with fig leaves, you have in Christ. In Christ you possess everything you ever need. You can live a life, someone says, of brazen, scandalous freedom, unrestrained fearlessness, and unbounded courage. Like someone says, when you don't have anything to lose, you discover something wonderful. You can do anything virtually. Why is the average church spluttering on, what, two, three, four plugs when it should be running on all 12 cylinders? Even though they can, they're gifted. And a lot of people sitting on the pews are gifted. They're afraid of failure. So they don't come up right here. Afraid of failure. We are leeching. We are hemorrhaging. That's why I say, can you imagine the vibrancy of a church if just 10% of the average church comes alive to this message. See, your security is anchored in what Christ has accomplished for you. You're now, to, you're now really free to admit your weaknesses without shame. You're free that, to admit that you haven't got it all together. You're free to admit that you've just botched it. You're free to accept that life isn't all about you, that you're not really the point. That's okay. You're free to accept that you don't have to stand at center stage. You're free to not to be found to not have to be found in the inner circle, as some of, a, of us crave to be found. You're free to let people into your life. You open the front door of your house easily. Come in doesn't matter. I've got nothing to show, nothing to hide. The pressure is off. You really don't have to make something of yourself. That's the winning ticket, really. The reason why your heart is so anxious and so fearful and so prideful and so lustful is because you've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten you've been justified. Declared righteous. You've forgotten that Jesus was crucified for you and in his crucifixion you have been deemed to have been crucified. You don't you need to get it, and I need to get it. Only then will the anxiety and the pride and the lust vanish from your heart. To simply say, I've got to stop worrying, I've got to stop worrying, just just won't work. You've got to find something more beautiful. I'm going to close with a story. I've told this story before, but it really fits today's message. I'm going to say it again. Augustine was a sex addict. He was really addicted to sex before he became a Christian. He was prodigious living, promiscuous living. He was a... Oh. One day, his girlfriend saw him from across the street, and she came running across the street to see him. Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine says, fine. Yes, how are you? And then he didn't say too much. And then he says, well, thank you very much. It's good to see you. And he walked away. And she thought, maybe he didn't quite recognize me. So she called out from across the street, 
Augustine, it is I. Augustine turned around and said, I know, but it is not I. He's saying, I'm glad to see you. I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad to see you fine. But you're no longer my righteousness. My security is no longer defined by you. I don't need you to validate me. I'm no longer addicted to you. I don't need your arms anymore. See how freeing it is. I like to be in that place. I so love to be in that place. And I pray that you, my sheep, will get to that place. That is the gospel. Lord, how wonderful this gospel is. How wonderful it is, really. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Forgive us when we have been striving so hard to be approved, to be accepted, to be loved, to be noted. Forgive us, Father. We've got it so wrong. We've got it so wrong, Father. It must have grieved you all these years when we are looking to this person, to that person, to this job, to that promotion, to validate us. When you have all that in your hand, ready to give it to us, and we turned away, away and we shun you. Lord, have mercy on us. Give us a fresh start this week. I pray that virtually every single one who has heard this message will make a difference in their lives this week. It's not about trying to be better. It's just resigning ourselves to you. You are our lives. Without you we die. We bless you, Father, for drawing us here this afternoon to hear this glorious gospel one more time. Thank you, Father. Bless you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.